Reformers were going back to Scripture and they were critiquing the Roman Catholic Church and they were critiquing them for many ways they, they were violating Scripture. And one of the things they critiqued the church for was violating the second commandment that we just read, explained together. Because the Roman Catholic Church had images depicting God and they used images that they used to worship God as well. That wasn't the problem. But the problem was that when people heard these things and they were convinced that the reformers were right, then people took to the streets. People formed riots and mobs and started breaking glass windows, pulling down statues, burning paintings and statues of images of God and images that people were using to worship God. This was called iconoclasm, going out and ripping these things down. And of course, this wasn't the right way to handle the issue. And interestingly, fascinatingly, in A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis argues that God himself is the great iconoclast. That God is the great iconoclast. And it's not, of course, that God violently, riotously, haphazardly destroys physical images used to worship him. Rather, what C.S. Lewis means is that God uses his perfect word, his perfect self-revelation of himself to rip down our mental statues, our mental images of who God must be, what our God must be like. Instead, God rips, the, or, yeah, God rips these things down with his word, and he teaches us what he's truly like. And more and more, he teaches us time and time again that he's far greater than we ever imagined, far bigger and far stronger and far holier, and also far kinder, far more loving and compassionate. And so even if we've, uh, by God's grace, we've known our Lord for many decades and loved him and learned about him for decades, C.S. Lewis argues that God is still the great iconoclast. There's still so much to learn. He needs to break down the images and replace them with better ones. More self-revelation, more accurate revelation of who he is. So this afternoon we'll be considering images of God. And first we'll consider the purpose of images, and secondly the insufficiency of images. So first, the purpose of images. So when we read the Ten Commandments uh, today, when we read them each Sunday again, uh, I don't know about for you, uh, but for me, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to apply these commandments to myself and see ways that I've broken each of them. Uh, Of course, I confess that I I have broken them. But for a few of the commandments, it can be uh, tough to see ways or think quickly of ways that I failed to, for example, keep the Sabbath day, uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It can be easy to think of how uh, in anger we have, in, in essence, uh, murdered our neighbor or something like that. But it can be difficult for some commandments, and maybe particularly so for the second commandment. Isn't that true? The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. When we hear that commandment, it's easy to think, I haven't. I haven't done that. I haven't made an image. I haven't bowed down to them, and I haven't even particularly felt drawn or compelled to do this at all. But in order to see how this commandment still does apply to us, we need to understand what the purpose of idols were in the Old Testament, in the biblical context. In Bible times, if you had an idol, a physical representation of a god, then that meant you had access to that god. In a sense, you even had control of that God. 
Where, wherever you went, that little God came with you. And so you could get to that God any time. And as long as you followed all the proper rituals and sacrifices, you were all but guaranteed that that God would have to bless you. And so idols were about controlling our God. And so, of course, these images were extremely important, any image of God. And this was true in temples as well. Picture, if you can, for a second, an ancient temple. Often, if you went in right away, you would see a big, impressive representation of the God that you were trying to control, that you were trying to coax blessings from. But our God, he reveals throughout his word in the Ten Commandments, and in a completely countercultural way in the Second Commandment, that he is completely different than anyone has pictured a God to be, than anyone thought that a God would work. He makes it clear you cannot get a personal portrait of him. Of him. And this is clear in his temple as well. Imagine going into God's temple. What do you see? There were altars, and there were various utensils, and there were all sorts of tools with special significance. But there was no picture of God at all. There were even some pictures of angels and of other creatures that God had created. But there was no picture of God himself and no image to use to worship him. The closest thing that we get to an image of God is the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was in the holies of holies. So most people couldn't see it. Rarely would see it at all. And that's where God said that he would dwell. But think about the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember the description that we have in God's word. The Ark of the Covenant, too, had no picture of God. Instead, what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? I wonder if you remember. We're told in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 that inside the Ark, there was a jar of manna, there was Aaron's staff, and there were the Ten Commandments. And isn't that fascinating? It seems like God is saying, if you want to see who I am, if, if you want to uh, learn uh, who I am, well, here you have it. I've revealed myself in my law, in my word. I've revealed myself in my acts in history, how I led you out of Egypt, how I cared for you in the wilderness, how I raised up leaders for you in Moses and Aaron and confirmed that they were your leaders and that they were speaking and leading you on my behalf. This is how God wants us to know him and to serve him and live with him as he reveals himself, how he truly is in his word and draws us near to us. But he gives us no picture, just the picture he paints through his inerrant word. Maybe you remember a story where the Israelites, they tried to use an ark in the way the nations would use an idol. The Israelites had at one point in their history, perhaps the kids remember the story, they had a time when they went out to battle and they lost. And then instead of inquiring of the Lord and asking uh, him to bless them, to give them victory, or rather uh, even asking if they should be fighting at all, instead what they did, they didn't go to God at all. Instead they tried to control God, didn't they? They went and they got the ark and they marched it out into the battlefield. And we read in 1 Samuel 4 that when the ark got there, all Israel gave a mighty shout. They thought that they could use the ark as an idol, as an image of God, to force God's hand. But God revealed emphatically that that's not how he works at all. He allowed the Israelites to be defeated again and even let the ark be captured and carried away. And there is very good news here, in fact, that our God is not like any other God, any other God anyone has ever even begun to imagine, that he's not like other nations' false gods. The good news is that our God cannot be controlled. 
And more than that, our God doesn't have to be controlled. Our God isn't like these false gods who apparently needed to be forced to be present with you. You had to carry around that little idol and force them to come with. Our God doesn't demand specific rituals to please him and secure his blessing. We saw that this morning with Abraham, didn't we? Our God is radically different. Our God is with us because he wants to be with us. He united himself to Israel because he wanted to. He wanted to answer their prayer and pour out blessings upon them. And so as soon as he leads them out of Egypt, he wants to teach them, I'm not like the other gods. You don't make an image of me and try and manipulate me in that way. You have a relationship with me and I'm going to teach you what that's going to look like. Uh, Our God, we, we can't control him and it's far better that we can come to him and ask him to control us, to teach us how we can live in this loving relationship with him. We saw again this morning, we don't need to manipulate him into blessing. He loves to pour out blessing on us. He wants to dwell with us. And since he comes to us uh, at his pleasure, he tells us clearly in his word how we can begin to live with him and how we can be blessed in our life with him. And this is important for us all to remember because I think it's true that there are ways that we all at times, in a sense, try and control God, try and force his hand, force him to give us blessings. Instead of just thinking about what a great God he is and how he loves to bless us, we, we try and earn these blessings and secure them for ourselves. We like to check off the boxes of church attendance, maybe even twice, good work, uh, devotions, charity work, and, and giving, and uh, prayers, things like that. And we think that as long as we follow this routine, we do this ritual, then God will have to bless us. He'll have to be happy with us. But brothers and sisters, we don't have a God like that. A God who needs us to stroke his ego and just follow these rules to please him. We don't have a God who can be controlled or wants us to try and control him. He does call us to read and to to pray and to do acts of charity, absolutely, but not to earn blessings from him, but to praise him and enjoy the blessings he pours out. He loves to bless. I think a really clear example of us trying to force God's hand comes in prayer. Uh, Sometimes, often, I'll uh, say a prayer before and after a meal or before bed. And sometimes it's easy to just do it mindlessly, just like you're checking a box, like you have to, so God will be happy. There are other times before a big event, before I have to preach or do a classes exam or something like that, I can suddenly get really nervous, thinking, oh no, I didn't pray enough. But like in the terms that I didn't say enough words, I didn't pray often enough, I didn't pray long enough, I didn't pray in the right way. But I was convicted this past week because I came across a quote that said, as Christians, we must remember that we do not believe in prayer so much as we believe in the God who answers prayer. Isn't that a good point? I don't have to be afraid that my prayers weren't long enough or good enough. Should I have prayed more? Probably, yes. But I can go to God and confess that sin as well and say that I still trust him. And in spite of my weakness and my failing, I don't believe in how much I'm praying or how good I'm praying, but I, I trust in him. That he's a faithful God who loves to bless. And the purpose of images was to try to control God or use him. But God bans images, first of all, because he doesn't want us to think that he needs to be controlled or used by us or that he could be controlled or used by us. He wants us to return to him and come to know him and love him and serve him and be instructed by him as we were created to do. That's why he sent his son to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between us and him. And now he calls us to come. Come straight to him. Not to, to focus on prayer or Bible reading as anything other than a means to get back to him, himself. 
We do these things not to earn God's blessings, but to enjoy his blessings. That leads us to our second point, the insufficiency of images. Because if our purpose is to come to know and love and serve this God who created us, then our desire should not be to have an image of him that we can look to to control him or an image that we can use to try and sum him up. Uh, An image we can use to try and understand the God. Because that, of course, is also how images were used in Bible times. The the physical representation, they made you understand the God, what he was all uh, about and what he did. But God calls us not to try and make any image of him. And we need to realize that's not a physical image, but it also shouldn't be a mental image as well. As C.S. Lewis, I was talking about earlier in the introduction, man-made images, whether physical or mental, they're all insufficient because they try to boil God down to something we can picture, something we can understand and wrap our minds around completely. As one book says, images unintentionally reduce God to manageable, predictable portions. And we can't reduce our God to manageable, predictable portions. And that's what we read. That's what God is combating for himself in Isaiah 40 that we read earlier. People trying to reduce him to an image. And so he asks multiple times, all right, you want to reduce me to an image. Think a physical image, but think a mental image as well. You want to boil me down. Well, what image in all of creation are you possibly going to pick? To whom will you liken God, he asks in verse 18. Or what likeness will you compare with him? We try and think for a moment of what, if you had to represent this God and make him into a manageable size, what image are you going to pick to represent God? The one who we read in verse 12, he tells us himself, he measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Think for a second about that. Think of Cultus Lake or Chilliwack Lake, or Harrison Lake. If you've been to the coast, think of the Pacific Ocean, or the Atlantic Ocean. And now think for a second about the God, think about our God, who made this water with a word, and who tells us here in Isaiah 40, that he measured the water in the palm of his hand. What image are you picking to boil down this God into a manageable size, something you can control? Something you can coax blessings from. Someone you can coax blessings from. And God goes on. He says that he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And he weighed the mountains in his scales. What image, physical or mental, are you picking to sum up this God? The great nations of the earth. You can think of the Assyrian or Persian or Roman empires. Or also the empires today. Canada and the United States and China and India, Russia, Brazil, so many more. God says in verse 17, the great nations of the earth are as nothing before him. They're like a drop in a bucket, like dust on a scale. Can you imagine that? The great nations of the earth. They're like the dust that's probably on your shirt. You don't even notice it right now. Maybe a fleck on your arm. Pick it up and put it on a scale. God says the great nations of the earth, that's what they are to him. That's what the USA, or the Roman Empire, is before our God. What image are you going to choose to sum up this God that we serve? Who far surpasses anything we can imagine in majesty and in strength. But also we read elsewhere, he far surpasses our understanding in justice and in holiness. We read in Hebrews 10 that our God... This great God 
is a consuming fire. We read in Habakkuk that this God's eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. And throughout God's word, he gives us an image of who he is. A God who sees all the injustice and evil and sin, even in our lives. And he hates it. He sees it clearer than we could possibly imagine, and he hates it more than we could possibly imagine. Now what image are you picking to sum up this God? What image, mental or otherwise, that you can pick to sum up the God who has angels surrounding him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, just catches a glimpse of his glory, even veiled behind angels in a vision, he cries out, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. Brothers and sisters, whatever our mental image of God is today, it's way too small, isn't it? Way too small. We cannot accurately sum up or comprehend this God. We can't make an accurate mental or physical picture. Time and time again, we need the Lord himself with his word to shatter our expectations, showing he's more powerful than we possibly imagined, more magnificent than we could have pictured, and more holy and just than we would ever dare think. But more than that, we also need to realize that he's far more compassionate and far more loving and far more kind than we could ever even dare hope. In Isaiah 40 that we read together, God shows he's more magnificent than we can picture. We sang together Psalm 50, where God rebukes the Israelites for underestimating his holiness, thinking that God looks a lot like you and me and looks a lot like them. But in Isaiah 55, which we read as our call to worship, God challenges us to never think we have an accurate mental image of just how loving and compassionate and gracious he is. There we read in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And the question that is ringing in our minds, or should be at least, is how could wicked people and unrighteous people like us return to the Lord we just heard of? Cannot even look upon evil. How could we go before this mighty and holy God? But God goes on to assure us our mental pictures of his compassion, his love, our mental pictures of who he is and his nature are inadequate. God goes on to say, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I love what John Calvin says, commenting on this passage. He says, There is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we begin to think that God is like ourselves. The profound comfort offered here from God himself is that we can't draw a portrait of our God. We can't make an image that explains him, not physically or mentally, because we've never met or seen anyone or anything like this God. We've never met or seen anything or anyone uh, like our God. 
Our God who is so holy, our God who is so powerful, and our God who is so compassionate. So compassionate that he calls back willfully sinful people, unrighteous people, into his open arms. Our God whose capacity for compassion and forgiveness far exceeds our capacity for compassion and forgiveness. He says that his ways and his thoughts, his compassion is greater than ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Don't underestimate just how forgiving this God is. How compassionate he is. How much love he has for you that surpasses understanding. We can't begin to picture our God. The only way we can really begin to know him and love him is if we have him tell us who he is. And by God's grace, he does tell us who he is. And the good news for us today is that this God, our God, he isn't like you. Isn't that good news? He isn't like me. Isn't that good news? God's sense of justice isn't like your sense of justice. Sometimes hot, sometimes cold, depends on the day. It's not like my sense of justice, where we can be terribly impulsive and rash uh, with our punishments and with our compassion, can't we? Well, good news is our God isn't like us. Likewise, we can be so weak, we can be so fragile and so vulnerable. And the good news is our God isn't like us. We can be so bitter, we can hold so many grudges, and we can be so slow to love and forgive. And the good news is our God isn't like us. We don't have to craft an image of this God. We can't craft an image of him even if we tried. But the good news is that God didn't leave us without an image of him. He didn't leave us with this temple without an image of himself forever. God actually gave us a new temple. And he tells us that that new temple was a perfect image of himself. We read in Colossians 1 verse 15 that Jesus Christ, the promised seed from Abraham we heard about earlier, sent to redeem us and bring us back to God, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We read in Colossians 2 verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ we have the perfect image of our God. And that's where we can see definitively, when we look to Jesus Christ, we see, oh, our God isn't like us, is he? Our God isn't like anyone or anything we've ever seen before. We see in Jesus Christ, our God is powerful. Jesus came and he had the power to calm winds and waves with simply a word, as though it was nothing. Our God is holy. Jesus had a perfect and controlled anger at injustice and oppression. Our God is compassionate. His heart and his mercy and compassion and forgiveness surpass our understanding as we can see in Christ time and time again. Blaise Pascal once wrote, I do not admire the extreme of one virtue like perfect justice unless you show me at the same time the extreme of the opposite virtue like perfect mercy. One shows one's greatness not by being at one extremity but by being simultaneously at two extremities and filling all the space in between. That's greatness. And that's exactly who we see our God is in Jesus Christ. And we see it's especially true at the cross. 
There we see God's holy, incomprehensible, perfect, absolute justice. His rage against our sin. And there we see his inexpressible love, his perfect mercy, his awesome compassion, that he would be willing to pay such a price for people like us. And brothers and sisters, the good news of the second commandment is we need no other image of God, do we? We shouldn't be satisfied with our mental images of God as they are until we completely understand our God in Christ. And of course, we'll never fully understand, but we'll be living with and for our God, learning more about him, starting now and going on for all eternity, mining the riches of just who this God, who our God is. Again, as C.S. Lewis says about God, the great iconoclast, we should keep going back to have our false images shattered time and time again because we need Christ, not something that resembles Christ. And the good news is that as God works to redeem and restore us, he transforms us as well. We need to remember we were created in initial glory. We were created to be the image of this God. And as we confessed a couple of weeks ago in Lord's Day 32 about our thankfulness for God's perfect salvation in Christ, we read in Lord's Day 32, Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God. So our God tells us, don't you make me in your image. Instead, our God tells us, come to me and I'll make you in my image. Isn't that so much better? The work can be slow and it can be painful as we're recreated by the word and spirit by Jesus Christ, as we're transformed more and more into what we were created to be, the image of God ourselves. But we are told uh, by John in his first epistle that when Jesus Christ appears once again, it may be very soon, as he promises us it will be, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And that's our desire, isn't it? Not just when Christ comes back already, now. To represent God very well as his image bearers. Uh, we need to remember that by our actions and by our words, we can and we actually do say a lot more than we would care to admit about who we believe our God is. Parents, we show our, pic- our children how we picture our God when uh, we uh, deal with them. We show our spouse how we picture our God. We show our neighbors and friends and co-workers what we think about God and how we act and how we talk. And as my old pastor once said, and it always struck with me, we need to remember that we might be the only picture of Jesus our neighbor ever sees. And that's a high calling. Of course, it doesn't mean that we need to be perfect. Instead, we just need to admit our weakness and come to Christ for transformation and grace time and time again. Instead of admitting our vulnerability and asking more and more that God would change us to look like the image of Christ. In order to present a good picture of our God, of course, though, we need to have a good picture of our God, and we need to rely on this God. And we get that by going time and time again to where our God reveals himself. And he reveals himself perfectly, not by means of dumb images, but by his living word. So we ought to resolve to spend the rest of our life wading into the unsearchable riches of Christ, through the Bible. We should be doing that through good songs and good books and good sermons that explain just who God is. They explain God's self-revelation in the scripture as well. 
And let's be open, let's pray that we're open to always be surprised and amazed and delighted by this God who truly does surpass our understanding. And we can always pray, as Charles Spurgeon once said, God, show me myself. And God, show me thyself. Never settling for an image of God, but asking God, the great iconoclast, to crush our images and replace it with him alone. Amen. Let's sing together in response, How Great Thou Art.